Okay, well, if you are watching by live stream, we welcome you. We have an audience that's growing um, by live stream, and we just welcome that audience. We love when they connect with us. Some are unable to be here today, so uh, we do welcome you. Also, um, this because it's live streamed, if you are connected to the Faith Chapel Facebook page, I would encourage you to share it. Uh, when you go to your page and share the live stream, hundreds and even thousands of viewers are able to see something that they would not normally be able to see. And we want to use and leverage technology to spread the gospel. Amen? So take a minute, go to your, go to your phone, connect to the Faith Chapel page, and share that. Even if your phone starts talking like you hear my voice, that's okay. We have that happen all the time. It's no big deal. And finally, um, if you have the app downloaded on your phone or your, or your tablet, all the notes related to this message will be there and available to you. Um, before I get into my message, I want to say something very quickly. There is something happening that's really good. Uh, there's a movement taking place that I've been longing for for a long time, and that is in the prayer room at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, it's becoming standing room only. And I felt like God gave me, God began to speak to me about times where it's going to be so powerful that his glory is going to fall in that room. And I mean, it's going to be unmistakable. So you don't want to miss that. It's pre-service prayer where we're just calling out to God and asking him for great things to happen in this service and throughout our city. And I just want to invite you there, 930 on Sunday mornings. We pray until just a little bit before 10, then we make our way into the service. All right. All right, so we have been in a series, I think this is the fourth week now, of a series called Transform the Norm. And the, the idea behind this, this series is that our normal, the normal that we see and live, uh, the church normal in our day, is not necessarily the normal that we see in scriptures. And so uh, we are looking at what the normal is in scriptures and working to get back to what the scriptures say about normal so that our normal is no longer normal, but the Bible's normal is normal. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, so that's what we've been talking about. I want to start off today with a verse out of Matthew chapter 4 to just lay a foundation of what I want to um, cover today in this message. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, I'm going to read 4, 18 and 19. And it says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for, for people. Now, I, I, I want to focus on verse 19. He says, come follow me. Now, this is, not what he, this is what he did not say, okay? He did not say, come follow me, and I will make you holy. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you a social group. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you a rich person. He, he didn't say, uh, you know, come follow me and I'll, I'll give you a problem-free life. He, he, didn't, he didn't say these things. He, he, there's a promise there. He, he didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you a good church person. He said, come follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. This is what Jesus' goal was from the beginning. He, he came to seek and save the lost, right? So he goes to these fishermen. 
And he says, listen, if you follow me, your fishing will be different than it's been. But you're going to still be fishing. Because followers fish. Followers of Jesus go after people. And this is Jesus' point. So, so today I want to talk to you about the power of, of inviting people. I want to talk to you about the importance of bringing people to Jesus. It's so significant, and I just want to, I want to dig into this a little bit. Now, to touch on the, the church and its perspective of what normal is. In the church, you see the early church, after Jesus ascended to heaven, there's 120 in this upper room, and on, on a day called Pentecost, which means 50, 50 days after Jesus ascended, or, yeah, well, 50, they were in the upper room for 10 days, 50 days after Jesus had died, buried, and resurrected. 50 days. And um, so after Jesus ascended, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes down. There was 120. That very day, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. A gospel that he hadn't preached, uh, to our knowledge, prior to that point in time. And 3,000 people came, uh, came into the kingdom of God. They, they, they got saved. They gave their lives to Jesus. They made a choice to conscientiously Follow him. That day, 3,000 people. But, but, but it doesn't stop there. As you read through the early chapter, chapters of Acts, we, we see in, in that same chapter, Acts chapter 2, it says the Lord was adding daily to their number. I mean, this is a church on the move. Things are happening. Uh, people are hearing the truth of the gospel and surrendering their lives to Jesus. A couple chapters later, it says the number of men grew to 5,000 in Jerusalem. That's men, but then there's women and children. So at minimum, in Jerusalem, there were probably like 15,000 people who called upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it goes on and on. You'll see that uh, uh, a next chapter says there was a multitude, an uncountable number of believers. Luke cha- or Acts chapter 5. Um, Acts chapter 6, the disciples rap- rapidly multiplied. There's this movement. There's, the Acts documents this movement of the gospel. And what happens even after that point is that um, the church undergoes persecution. They become scattered. They have to leave Jerusalem and they go to this various, various parts uh, uh, surrounding Jerusalem and they were sharing the gospel wherever they went. I, I want to be like that. I want to be, you know, they were, they were displaced from their homes. Some maybe were displaced from family members. Maybe family members were arrested because of their faith. Maybe they lost some of their possessions. And if I think of the church in the context of that setting, persecution, would we respond that way? Or would we be like, ugh, like Eeyore, woe is me. I can't believe all this stuff is happening to me. Do you see what the Lord's doing? And, and we'd, so be, we'd be so, I think it'd be easy for us to be so self-focused that we miss the point that God has a mission for us. We're on a mission, right? No matter what's going on, we have a voice and we carry the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Think about it. How would, how would you respond personally? Don't answer that. Just think about it. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the, in, in the storms of life, the challenges of life, the obstacles that we face, that sometimes we miss our moment to make a difference. 
We, we miss our moment to change the world around us. And, you know, sometimes it is, we could call it, it's called in the Bible, persecution. But it could be called just opposition or challenges. Or someone's mad at us. Or we, we've got to, you know, we've done some stupid stuff. So we're changing, uh, you know, people, places, and things in our lives. Whatever it is. But if we, we, if we have the ability to keep our eyes focused on Jesus... And we're, we don't allow our mouths to be shut. We can change the world around us. James says this, count it all joy when you face various trials. Like, who counts it joy when they have troubles in life? But there's a reason for it, you see. And so today, I, I want to just share with you some things um, that are on my heart. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. I'm not trying to preach a popular message today. I want to preach the truth of God's word. So listen, this is, I, I know what you're thinking. Well, you don't want me talking about Jesus. Because, you know, if I was ever challenged or if a debate ever happened, I just wouldn't know what to say. You don't, you don't want me. So we, we have the ability to disqualify ourselves, right? Or, you know, I, I just, I don't want to talk about Jesus because I'm too afraid. I, I just, I, I don't know what they'll think and I'm not comfortable with that. And we, we come up with all these ideas that allow us to discount the reality of what God has told us to do, to step aside from it and, and have a clean conscience afterwards. Like, well, you know, that's for somebody else. That's for the pastor. That's for leaders or people like that. But that's not really my job. And so I want to talk to you today about the fact um, that it is your job. You may be thinking, okay, I, uh, this guy's going to hand us tracks and send us out door to door. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hand a mega, put, you, put a megaphone in your hand either. Funny story. Uh, last year during Christmas, my wife and I, and I think a couple kids, maybe it was just my wife and I, we were going to the mall, and we had to park in overflow parking, and, and as we were walking to get to the bridge to go into the mall, there was a guy across the street with a megaphone. And the guy had signs and, and uh, you know, he, he, was, he was just speaking, like, very harsh things to people. And I, I remember hearing people because it was like a, a crowd moving down the sidewalk and across the street from this man. And I remember hearing people saying, what in the world is that guy doing? Hurry up. Let's get in. Let's get in there. Let's, you know, let's... Uh, I don't want to hear that. Why is he doing that? And my wife was were thinking, my wife and I were, had similar thoughts. Now, if God called you to speak through a microphone, speak love. That's what I want to say to you. We, we don't want to condemn people. I, I, would, I would propose that um, a megaphone is probably not the best way to go about things. But you got to do what God tells you to do. But if he does tell you to do that, speak love. Because God so loved the world, Right? His intention is not to condemn people. It's to love people into the kingdom. Right? That's his plan. That's his desire. He loves people. He loves people dearly. And so I'm not going to send you out with a megaphone. And I know sometimes when you start to hear about evangelism and sharing your faith and things like that, you just get that feeling like, oh, no. Uh, maybe I have to go to the bathroom. And, oh, yeah, I got a phone call. It's time to go. Um, but the reality is... If you think about the person that was instrumental in bringing you to Christ, you don't have that feeling, do you? I would bet you 
85 to 90% of us in this room, when we think about how we came to Christ, it was because of Bill. It was because of John. It was because of Sandy. It was, we, we think affectionately, right? We think affectionately about that person who influenced our lives. Most of us do. Most of us think uh, kindly. We have warm thoughts about that person. For me, it was my sister, Jill. I mean, I don't, I don't think, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, I can't do that. It, it, it's usually people we know that have an influence on our lives. Think about it for your personal life. It's usually people we have a relationship with that we care about, that we, that we know care about us, that influence our lives. For me, uh, my sister Jill, she had started going to a church. I was about 18, 19 years old. And I remember her asking me, and she had asked me several times. I, had a, I just had a heart for God, even though I didn't know God. I, I knew he was real, and I wanted to know him someday. And, and so I kept saying, you know, at one point, sometime I will go with you. Sometime I, I will go with you. And eventually that sometime came. And I remember when I, when I went with her and my mom to this church on the north side of Syracuse, um, the, the preacher preached a message, and uh, I don't know what, I just felt like I've got to go up front. I've got to go up front and give my life to Jesus. And my life has forever been, been changed because of that. But I would have never walked into uh, the doors of that church if it wasn't for my sister. You hear what I'm saying? I would have never walked into the doors of that church if it wasn't for my sister. So I want to talk to you today. The title of my message is this. Friends bring friends to Jesus. Friends bring friends to Jesus. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. And I need you to bear with me today because I have a lot of scripture that I want to get through. But I think you're going to see that... um, There's some powerful elements to what's being shared today. Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read a chunk of scripture, Mark 2, 1 through 12. And it's a story that's being shared by Jesus, or about about Jesus, an encounter he had. It says, a few days later, when Jesus entered again into Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So envision this. There's this house. Now, those houses in that day were not the size of houses in this day. And so this, it's a smaller type house, and it's so packed, there's no room. I mean, there's people. It's standing room only. They're standing outside the door, the Bible tells us. They're standing outside the door. It says some men came, verse 4, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So four guys are like, we've got to get our friend to Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, he's probably on like this hard plywood type thing, and they're carrying him. One on each corner is the way I see it. One on each corner. Come on, let's get Johnny. Let's get Johnny to Jesus. We've got to get Johnny to Jesus. And, and they see, there's probably some disappointment. They see that there's no way in the world they're getting him in that house. So they come up with this brilliant idea. How about we just tear the roof off the house to get this guy to Jesus? I mean, this is awesome, isn't it? They're going to get, friends get friends to Jesus. 
And so, uh, back to the second half of verse 4. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And, and the, the roofs in that day were made of, like, twigs and sticks. And then they were, they were sealed together by mud. And the mud would harden and uh, form a, a water barrier when, when it rained. So, so they, they peeled it off. Digging through it, and they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, and they're thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, was, what, what this was, what they were in his spirit, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew what they were thinking without it being said out loud. Okay? We could call that uh, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. You know, it could be, it, it could be God uses kind of supernatural gifts to reveal things that are not supposed to necessarily be known. Um, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that, what was, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your, son, your sins are forgiving, forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Now, if we just step back from this story for a minute, can you imagine just the awe? If you're, say you're part of the crowd. You're, you're just standing like, you hear about this Jesus, this miracle worker, and, and, and you're all of a sudden right before your very eyes, a guy that you've passed hundreds of times with a sign in his hand, a piece of cardboard that says, uh, you know, will work, I'm hungry, please give me something. All of a sudden, this guy is raised because he was paralyzed. He was raised up before you. And he walks out of the house that you're standing in. You're a spectator. How about if you're a Pharisee and you've got this judgmental attitude, like who in the world does this guy think he is? Forgiving sins. All of a sudden, this guy gets up and walks out. I mean, your, your mouth drops you have nothing else to say. What if you're those four friends? And you're like, come on, this is amazing. I saw Jesus do this in the, in the, sanctuary, in the synagogue. I, I saw him do it. Uh, you know, even my cousin Bill got healed last week. You know, and, and now our best buddy Johnny is walking again. This is amazing. I mean, could you imagine the astonishment of this moment, I mean, your life is forever changed with an encounter with Jesus. And you've witnessed it. The house is full. People are crowding around. They want to hear what this guy has to say. And so um, they're there and they see all this amazing stuff. So I want to give you three very quick, simple observations from this passage. And then a message that Jesus has for all of us in this room, every one of us. In this room. Here's the first observation from this, this passage. Their friend had a need. Their friend had a need. And, and they knew he had a need. And, and probably their thinking is, 
this guy is paralyzed. Now, if you know anything about the culture in that day, and the culture in that day was this guy was not only paralyzed, but he was ostracized. He, he was shunned. Uh, the, the religious teachers would teach he's paralyzed because of some sin in his life or some sin in his parents' life. Uh, you know, but not only that is if you're paralyzed, you have no ability to work. There's no health care system. People look at you judgmentally because of the teaching, the religious teaching of that day. And you carry guilt, shame, and condemnation in your life. These guys knew their friend had a need. He was probably broken, hurting, probably so ashamed not even to want to look people in the eye because he was beat down. He'd been beat down too much in life. Life was hard for him. And they knew their friend had a need. And um, what I want to say to us is this. We all have friends that have a need, don't we? We all have friends that have some need. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's emotional. We all have friends that, that have a need. And, and I also want to say this. I'm just not going to skirt around this. This is not a game. Heaven and hell are real. You know, and, and there's times that we could easily look people in the eye and be so afraid inside that we don't have enough in us to tell them that there's hope. You know? But listen to me, eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. And I want to share with you very quickly uh, a couple verses related to this. Because even though this guy was physically paralyzed, every person that you will run into in life has a similar need that this guy had. Let me show you. John 12, 40 says this. Speaking about the Satan, the enemy, Lucifer... Jesus says this, he has blinded their eyes, that means the eyes of the people, and hardened their hearts so that can, they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Listen to me, the odds are stacked against people. You ever hear Jesus in his teaching said there's a narrow road, and few find it, and there's a wide road, and many find it? The odds are stacked against people. And they may not be physically paralyzed, but based upon this verse, they're paralyzed. They can't see. They can't hear. They're spiritually dead. It's very hard for people because the enemy's flexing his muscles and expressing his influence. And there's windows of time that they have opportunity to, to turn back to God. And he uses everyday ordinary people like you and me to, to help that process, to participate in that process. But, but they're paralyzed. You, you, you need to see that. Blinded eyes. Hardened hearts. They can't see. And they can't understand. But this is God's heart right here. Second Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient He's patient with me and you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Say that word, everyone. everyone. Listen to me. If you hear theology about God chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell, this verse is P 
Peter missed it on this one, okay? God did not choose. God's desire is that everyone, everyone, that doesn't leave out anyone, okay? Everyone comes to repentance. That's God's will. But we also know that God's will is not always accomplished, right? I mean, I have a choice every day to do God's will or to not do God's will. And so do you. But it's God's heart, it's God's desire, it's God's will that everyone would come to repentance. So you got the enemy working one way, God's influence the other, and then people ultimately have a choice, a decision to make. So the first part of that observation is this. Their friend had a need, okay? The second thought is this. Only Jesus can meet that need. Only Jesus can meet the needs of this world, and specifically in that story, it's only Jesus. Now, if you can imagine, Jesus is preaching. All of a sudden, like, debris starts falling through the roof. You know? Like, stuff's happening. And, like, right when this man's being lowered, they're interrupting Jesus, speaking a message, a life-changing message. But I, I would bet money that that man being lowered at that specific time, that point in time, was an illustration for what he was preaching. That's just my opinion. It's not scripture. It's my opinion. Okay? I'm betting this guy's coming down and Jesus is speaking about forgiveness of sins or the, the awesomeness of God sending his Messiah. Something. But there was this, I think, this visual illustration coming down. It must have been amazing and even more astounding for the observers. So, so this guy is being lowered, and, and the, the friends were determined that it was only Jesus could, that could meet that need. Do you know how I know? Um, I, I'll share with you a verse that I read. It says in verse 5 of Matthew 2, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. They had faith that something was going down that day for their buddy. They had faith. They believed. They had confidence. that They, they believed that when they were leaving in that moment, that uh, something amazing was going to happen. Something amazing was going to happen. Katie, just give me a couple minutes because I'll give you a cue, okay? Our first cue didn't work well, but I like, I like having her on the stage. It, it's okay. You, it, your presence up here is just dynamic. It's awesome. So, so his friends were convinced that Jesus was the answer, that he had the answer. Listen to me. We... Uh, I guess this is, I, I would pose this as a question. When have we become convinced that Jesus is no longer the answer? When, when have we decided that there's a plan B? That maybe there's a better option? Because I, I, I think that we've taken steps backwards to say, well, somehow, some way, maybe the stars will align and our friends, you know, our friends could get to Jesus somehow. Or maybe we just think, maybe he's not the best option. Let me just remind you of what was said about him, first by him and then by the apostles. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. 
There's no, there's no other way. There's not a plan B. So, so these friends were convinced that it was only Jesus that could make a difference in their friend's life, their paralyzed friend's life. Acts 4.12, this is the early church. I think this is Peter speaking. He says this, salvation is found in no one else. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is found in no one else. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not, not all these other, uh, other ways that are, are out there in the world today. There's only one plan that God has. It's Jesus. It may sound exclusive, but that's God's idea. It's not mine. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There's, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, God goes through to great extents so that people can come to know him. Just as a reminder of the verse I shared with you earlier, that his, it's his will, it's his desire that everyone comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everyone comes to repentance. So, so just backing up, their friend had a need. The, only Jesus could meet that need. And here's my last thought out of this passage, and it's this. They did whatever it took to get him to Jesus. They did whatever it took. I mean, the, the crowds didn't deter him, the fact that he was paralyzed and they had to carry him. We don't know how far they carried him. It could be 50 feet. It could be five miles. We, we just don't know. We don't know what transpired there for them to decide, we've got to get him to Jesus. But they got him there. It, it, they were probably getting, you know, it, when people try and cut in line in front of you, what is the reaction you have? You know, they're probably getting looks. They're probably getting snide remarks. They're, you know, they're probably, uh, you know, mean mugged, all that stuff. It's just not good, right? And they're like, we got to get this guy to Jesus. But, but I've been here all morning. What are you talking about? You're not getting in front of me. My goodness. Wait in line. They're like, okay, well, we'll just climb up on top of the roof. We're getting this guy to Jesus. Right? So, so they, they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And I want to tell you something. Their determination is quite impressive. But think about that. Let's just turn that around for a second. Friends bring friends to Jesus. What, to what extent would we be willing to go to get someone in our life, a family member, a coworker, a friend to Jesus? I mean, is it so, it's so easy to give up. I tried, you know. I, I, I invited. Uh, I remember one guy that used to go to our church that he's now a part of the, the Auburn Faith Chapel. Um, one of his, I think it was like a distant family member, but also a friend, called literally every single week for two years. Skip. You guys know Skip Sewell? Some of you will know him, but Gary Baker called Skip Sewell Every week for two years. And every week he got the same answer. No, no thanks. I'm not, no, no, I'm not going to church. No, I'm not interested. But finally he came. And God changed his life. He's been in the church ever since. To, to what extent would we go? I mean, the determination speaks volumes to me. It, it's, just, it's just amazing um, 
amazing what, what these, these guys did for their friend. And I feel like, just to be honest with you, the church has lost a passion to see lost people come to Jesus. I was thinking this morning about uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge. In Hacksaw Ridge, there's this guy named Desmond Dawson, and he uh, signs up. It's during part of World War II where the Americans are fighting the Japanese. And he's a conscientious objector, which means he refused to hold a weapon, and he refused to kill people. And in this, as he goes to battle, I mean, they, they tried to kick him out. They tried to say he had psychiatric, problem, psychiatric problems, psychological problems. They tried to kick him out, but ultimately he went to war as a medic. And he had this mission. He kept on praying to God. He says, God, just give me one more. Just give me one more. And all through the night, a couple, two, three nights in a row, as his, as his, uh, peers were wounded, as his fellow soldiers were wounded and dying, he would go, he, he would sneak up um, and, and grab them and bring them and, and slide them, I think it's called belay, belay them down a cliff on a rope to their rescue. And he ended up saving 75 people. But his heart cry speaks to me and his determination speaks to me. He kept on asking God, God, would you give me one more? Would you just give me one more? And I feel like people in this room, all of us, including myself, we just need to start asking for the one. You know? I mean, as God gave him one after another to rescue, and he led them uh, to life again and to restoration and healing again, um, their life was forever changed. But it was the determination that this guy had. I mean, his hands were uh, blistered, and I mean, he was, he was weakened, but he just kept going and going and going. You should see that movie. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. And he, this guy, Desmond Doss, became the first conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Never shot a gun in his, in his service. He never killed a person in his service, but he was awarded a Medal of Honor. Here's my last thought very quickly. So that's three observations from the text. Now here's observations from Jesus' life. Ready? Jesus' plan is for us to fish for people, like I started off saying. The, the last words of Jesus in the first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, communicate it. I'm going to share these very quickly with you. And let me just say this. If he is Lord, he gets to call the shots. It's not, I'm afraid, I don't feel like it. Someone else would do a better job. He's speaking to every one of us when he says in Matthew 28, 19, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see that? Go. Go. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You think he, he, he's, got, he's like focused on this mission. Like this mission is only going to be accomplished if my people go. Luke, Luke 24 He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That's just another way of saying go and reach people, right? Another way of saying it. John 20, 21. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Do we remember how the Father sent him? To 